This is Continua. We're guided by music and grounded in science. Journey with us as we explore the intersection of music and health. We're diving into discussions with professionals and creatives. We're sharing information and giving you conversations to motivate you along your health journey. I'm Chloe Livray. I'm Aliyah Abdullah. And you're listening to The Continua Podcast. So welcome to The Continua Podcast. Chloe, song Tuesday. Today is Tuesday. Before we dive right in, do you have a theme song of the day, like a song that's been on rotation the past couple days or favorite? Ooh. Um, yes. Okay. You know me and my moody songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any song that I can do like an interpretive dance to, I'm all about. And I can just sit in my car and sing it. I'm all about it. So it's called Mirror. Which, by the way, if you're in the car with Chloe and the song is not done, she will not get out of the car until the song finishes. <laughs> so just letting everyone know that. Very true. You're not wrong. Mirror by Madison Ryan Ward. Okay. So it's a beautiful song. Nice. How about you? Um, mine would be Veg Out by Masego or King's Rant by Masego. Those are my two as of right now. Very nice. They are, how would I describe them? They're, I don't even think I really have words right now, so I'm just not even going to (laughs) attempt to Wait, are you, are you tired? How did you sleep last night? Oh, wow. (laughs) Cue up for, for our guest today. You'll understand why she asked that question. So Dr. Jennifer Martin is a clinical psychologist and sleep specialist in the LA area. She's a professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and a well-known expert in the treatment of sleep disorders. Her scientific research program focuses on the benefits of treating sleep disorders and improving sleep quality on health and human performance. She is a recognized international leader in her field and works to make the science of sleep accessible to the public. So you can see why we wanted to have her on. <laughs> and why I got at least seven hours of sleep. Right. If you want a good sleep, you better get sleep for, for Dr. Jennifer Martin. Um, so without further ado, hello. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to be here with the two of you. We are, we have been teeing up <laughs> this podcast podcast episode for a while. Yes. Um, even when, uh, even before I emailed you, <laughs> I was speaking it into existence. <laughs> so I, she was. I really was. She on, was. Like, every she episode. <laughs> I was like, yeah, so when we have Dr. Jennifer Martin on. <laughs> so Great. so I'm, I'm really I'm, happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for being here. We're, yeah, we're really pumped. Super, super pumped. So let's dive in, yeah? Yeah, let's dive in. Okay, perfect. So uh, let's start with um, just as... You being a clinical psychologist, um, what made you focus on sleep? What what kind of a pe- piqued your interest in sleep? So um, when I was first starting my graduate school training, um, I was really struck by some of the experiments that were being done that we now think of as just common knowledge. So when I was a student, we didn't know that exposure to light effect- affected human circadian rhythms. We didn't know anything about the genetics that control our circadian clock. We still had debates about sleep, whether sleep was an essential biological function or not. And I was so curious about the fact that we we basically spend a third of our lives doing something that we really didn't understand. Um, So it was really kind of just a curiosity, I guess, 
um, which became even more interesting to me when I started seeing patients and seeing that for a lot of them, even if they had a list of 27 different problems that, and, and I just can't get a decent night of sleep just seemed to come up all the time. And so as I continued in my training in psychology, I, I really got interested in how, not just how to sleep better for its own sake, but how, when we help people sleep better, we improve so many other things. And, and so I had the experience of seeing it happen in my clinical work, but then also the science was moving so fast in terms of our understanding about why we sleep and about all the good stuff that happens. And, and I was really encouraged actually to hear, um, the, this conversation about like, Oh, well, I had to get enough sleep before tonight because 10 years ago, this conversation or before today, 10 years ago, this conversation would have started with now, do I really need seven hours? Cause I got six last night and I'm fine. And, and I just don't hear that as much anymore. And that actually makes me feel good. Yes. Right. I, I was mentioning that on a previous podcast. I do remember it was almost like a badge of honor of team, no sleep of, right. I deprived yeah. myself. I'm working so hard. I'm sacrificing sleep. And if you're sleeping, then it's almost positioned as lazy. So I'm mm. glad that that's not the case anymore because I actually really love sleep. <laughs> and yep. I have a quick question so we could break down for our listeners. How would you define circadian rhythm? So circadian rhythms are uh, 24-hour cycles that happen in our brain and our body. So the, the translation is, is from the word circa, which means about, and DM, which means a day, right? So about a day. It's really interesting to just sort of reflect on our environment, right? The sun rises and sets on a cycle of about 24 hours. So wouldn't it make sense if living organisms followed a similar cycle? But then let's say it's dark or you live in the far north or the far south. You still need some way to maintain those cycles. So we aren't 100% reliant on external light to keep our, our clock intact or functioning, but it is one of the main sources of input is the, the light-dark cycle. But, but even individual cells have a 24-hour rhythm to them. Um, and, and why does this matter? Well, it matters because if you think about things like treating cancer, which are cells that are dividing abnormally, they don't divide at the same rate 24 hours a day. They actually divide faster or slower depending on what time it is. So wow. um, circadian rhythms in general are like 24-hour cycles. The ones that we think about are like hormones, cortisol, obviously sleep. But there are a whole bunch of 24-hour cycles, at, not just at the level of a human organism, but at the level of our cells. And I think there's even some, some data that at the subcellular level, there's even like mitochondrial function and things that are way outside of my own area of expertise. <laughs> um, but I just have found this so interesting that something that we thought of as a behavior is really like core and intrinsic to our biology. Right. Sleeping patterns. Right. Right. And so with that being said, why are we so tired at night? <laughs> Can you break that down oh, for us? Yeah. Well, that's on purpose, right? So so first of all, it's probably a good adaptation to sleep at night when it's dark and there's like predators and stuff, right? <laughs> so it would be really good if our tendency as humans is to go find a safe place to go hide and sleep as opposed to being out wandering around getting eaten by saber-toothed tigers and stuff, right? 
that might not be uh, accurate in terms of evolutionary history. <laughs> <laughs> be, there's something. There has to be something the out raccoons. there. The raccoons. It's the raccoons. Right. The raccoons yeah. are something. I mean, it's, <laughs> in this 2020 era, we don't know what's out there now. Right. It's <laughs> Armageddon of a year. <laughs> so, um, so, but what's happening in our bodies, to bring it back to present day, what's happening in our bodies is that our body temperature goes down. Uh, our our body naturally produces melatonin when it gets dark. Um, our heart rate slows. Um, you know, we see all kinds of changes in hormones and in our brain. And, and things really do start to kind of quiet and calm down late in the day, uh, which is one of the reasons why having a consistent schedule so that you start to get that tired feeling at the same time, day after day, and it becomes very predictable is so important because it's actually... It's not just a, an attitude or something going on in your mind. It's actually your brain and your body sort of um, preparing for uh, a restful night of sleep. I need to get on a on a pattern. Um, Chloe and I talk about my sleep patterns quite often because they're very <laughs> inconsistent. <laughs> and the the time of of feeling tired at night, I can definitely say I'm sensitive to to light. So in the morning. Um, as soon as there's daylight or something, I definitely feel like I'm, I'm starting to wake up more, even if I went to sleep really late. My question is, let's say it's around eight o'clock, nine o'clock, and I'm really tired, but I push through that period of time. What happens to my body after that? Where I, then I'm like wired and I'm stuck and I'm like, okay, I'm not, now I'm not going to bed until like two or three. What, what happens? So there's something really funny about our circadian rhythm. And that is that, um, we, we often think about our circadian rhythm as what puts us to sleep, but really what it does is it keeps us awake, right? So, so as we go through the day, we're accumulating sleepiness, right? So when you wake up in the morning, think about it like you just ate a big meal. You're not hungry, right? But as time goes by, what happens is your brain gets more and more hungry for sleep. But opposing that, so we don't just like doze off every 15 minutes, is our circadian clock. So our clock is sending us alerting signals. The interesting thing about these signals is that they are actually strongest in the last couple of hours before we go to bed. Again, if we think back to our cave dwelling days, that was probably because we needed enough energy and alertness to prepare a safe place to sleep. Right, right, right. So we get this little burst of energy, which is totally normal and part of our circadian timing system. The challenge is that if you tend to go to bed really late, um, then that energy is going to kick in pretty late in the evening. The other thing is, what do you do with that energy, right? Do you use it to start a new project or do you use it again to kind of put the data? Guilty. Rest? I'm so guilty right? of that. <laughs> oh, man. It's almost like you're no not time wasted with Aaliyah. <laughs> so yeah, that's the truth is that it is your circadian alerting signal telling you, Hey, I'm giving you this little extra push so that you can get ready to go to sleep. Um, so that's a pretty normal experience. And uh, and it is helpful when you get that little sleepiness in the evening to kind of push through it. Because if you fall asleep, then you're not going to be so hungry for sleep a few hours later, right? So if you doze off on the sofa or, you know, maybe pull out your laptop and watch some silly YouTube videos and the next thing you know, you're droopy. Well, that's actually going to make the problem worse, not better. So... <clears throat> Why is it important to get seven to nine hours of sleep? There's a lot of there's a lot of buzz around getting that yeah. 
um, that window. That window, exactly, of time. And then also, can you give us the breakdown of what actually happens when you're sleeping and why it's important to get those seven to nine? Yeah, well, the answer to the first and the third question are the same. <laughs> so the way that we decide how much sleep people need is by looking at what happens when they don't get it. So if you sleep, and, and we have more data about sleeping less than seven hours than we have about sleeping more than nine hours. Mm. And the reason is in an experiment, we can wake somebody up. We don't have an experiment where we make someone sleep 10 or 11 hours. It's impossible. We can't do it. So it's not possible to get more sleep than you need. That's maybe one of the first myths is when people say, oh, well, I slept too much. It's impossible. It's like, oh, you know, I, um, I absorbed too much vitamin C from my lunch. It's, we, it, it doesn't happen that way, right? Um, so, uh, so the first part is the seven to nine hours. The, where that came from was by looking at what happens when people sleep four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 hours in terms of their health and well-being. And there were two separate groups that actually looked at the scientific literature a few years ago and interestingly came to very similar recommendations. Um, one group decided seven or more, right? Like we really think that the vast majority of people will be, uh, will benefit from getting at least seven hours of sleep. Yeah. There are a few people who are good with less, but most people, the vast majority of people need at least seven. The other group put an upper limit on it at nine hours. And the reason was there's some data where they looked at really big studies of say hundreds of thousands of people, and they asked them how many hours they sleep. and um, for people who say that they sleep 10 or 11 hours a night, they don't live as long. Now, one would ask the question, mm. well, why would that be the case? And, you know, they account for if they have heart disease and age and things like that. Mm -hmm. But um, we actually don't understand what that is, like why that happens. Um, so this is kind of a big question out there. Is there such a thing as too much sleep? My own personal theory is that very long sleep is a marker for something else that we just don't understand yet. So a symptom right. for a basically a symptom for an for an issue that's unidentified, exactly. which is then why the person is sleeping so, so much, much in the first right. place. It's Interesting a problem, a hormonal imbalance, mm. like but something that we don't traditionally try to measure. And mm. and there's not a lot of people out there like this either. The vast majority of adults feel and function well if they sleep in that range of seven to nine hours. Um, so you asked me what happens during sleep. And this is actually where I think when people say like, how can I get by with less? I think they're asking the wrong question mm -hmm. because so many great things happen in your brain and your body while you're asleep. So when you first fall asleep, you go into kind of light sleep. And, and in fact, this is the kind of sleep when you, you know, you close your eyes and then you open them and you're not really even sure if you fell asleep or not. And then after a few minutes, you go into a deeper stage of sleep. So we call these non-REM sleep stages one and two. Stage uh, non-REM two is where people actually are sleeping. So, you know, if you doze off on your sofa and somebody kind of taps you on the shoulder, you'll say, okay, I, I was asleep. And three or non-REM three is what we call deep sleep. And we have our first episode of deep sleep, maybe an hour after we fall asleep at night. And this is where our body does a lot of recovery. So lots of growth hormone secretion, muscle memory. Um, so a lot of good stuff is happening in our body during N3 or deep sleep. And then after about an hour and a half, we have REM sleep. 
And REM sleep is where most of our dreaming occurs. And this is where we really think a lot of emotional learning takes place. Interesting. So um, if you think about it, the best way to get really good at sports or to get really smart is to get a good night of sleep. The best (laughs) way to recover from being sick is to get a good night of sleep. Sleep has incredible anti-inflammatory properties. Um, So in fact, one of my favorite studies is, and and I would never volunteer for a study like this, but (laughs) thankfully some people do. They took a group of healthy undergraduates and they exposed them to a cold virus. And then they either let them sleep like eight or nine hours, or they only let them sleep for four hours. The group that got a full night of sleep, very few of them actually got a cold. The group that only slept four hours, like 80% of them got sick. Mm. So say it again. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, oh, now I know what happened through my 20s. Mm, now mm, I know mm. why I was always sick in high mm, school. Mm, right? mm. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. So I I have a question. Um, with insomnia and the inability to 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 go to sleep, when I'm assuming that means that your your brain is is running and you're thinking about a whole bunch of different things. Are there practices, whether it's like music therapy or white noise or certain things that we can we can do for ourselves to try and calm our brain down. I have I have that problem often. Well, let me draw a line between what we think of as kind of a normal response to stress and what we think of as a real clinical disorder. So a bad night of sleep every now and then is completely normal. So again, let's go back to we live in a cave and there's a bear outside. Okay. It would be really unfortunate if we fell asleep in the face of that stress. Right. (laughs) So right now it's like, oh my gosh, you know, someone hit my car in the parking lot at work. That's not quite a bear, but still those kinds of things keep us awake. And it's, you know, again, it's kind of that um, uh, fight, flight, or freeze response that's triggered. And we do not sleep in that context. Um, So that's normal. And the solution to that is to take good care of your sleep in general so that when those night ha- nights happen from time to time, it's not a big deal. If you sleep well for two weeks and then you have two bad nights, it's really, you know, you can get by. You're okay. No, are you 100%? No, but you're 90%, right? A clinical insomnia disorder is when a person has problems sleeping at least three times a week for at least three months. And it's bad enough that on a regular basis during the day, they don't feel well, or they feel like they can't function, they can't concentrate, you know, maybe they have headaches. So when we get to that level, then we think about it as a clinical disorder. Um, And usually that needs to be treated by a specialist. Um, So, you know, people talk a lot about kind of sleep hygiene and things like that. But by the time you get to that point, usually you need to look at the big picture. You need to see how much time are you spending in bed? what's going on in your head when you get into bed? Are you thinking, oh no, here we go again, right? We might need to introduce some mindfulness perhaps. Um, we might, maybe you're getting in and out of bed at a time that doesn't align with your circadian rhythm and we have to adjust that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're sleep deprived all week and then you're sleeping 12 hours on the weekend and then on Monday you're not tired. And so you can see how this cascade can kind of happen. So again, going back to this, what I think is more common is 
you know, I do fine, but then when I'm under stress, I don't sleep so well. The solution to that really is don't worry too much about it. It's totally normal. Take care of your sleep on a regular basis and a few bad nights here and there isn't the end of the world. Okay. Mm -hmm. Noted. So music, music, like white noise or like streams and water and all that stuff in the background. Is that so let me address that specifically because um, music for a lot of people is very relaxing and mindful. So it can be a great way to kind of calm yourself at the end of the day, wind down. Um, you can listen to music without shining a light in your face. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit. So it can be really helpful. Having said that a couple of years ago, I had a patient who was a composer. And when I said, you know, at the end of the day, you could read, you could listen to music. And he says, Oh my gosh, no way. Music is work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I thought, okay, so if you're the kind of person that when you listen to music, you kind of get amped up. Well, that's a great way to start your morning, but maybe not the best way to wind down at the end of the evening. So you kind of have to know about your own relationship with music to figure out how you fit it into your routine. Interesting. And why um, why is white noise so soothing for people or like ocean sounds or I guess water streams? Yeah, water streams. Yeah. yeah. Actually, the main reason is that it blocks out other sounds that have meaning. So, mm. you know, it's like, you know, something that's kind of nice and maybe reminds us of nature or even white noise. What it does is if you think about, you know, maybe a decibel level that's like here, and then there's noises that spike the decibel level up. And what our brain responds to when we're sleeping is the difference. So people can sleep in pretty noisy environments as long as the noise is constant. Um, I like, can. I yeah, not. Right? I, I can not. I'm sensitive to light, but <laughs> oh I, I will gosh, be knocked no. out if if this yeah. if the background noise is is no, background noise. Wow, that was hard to get out. If the background noise is consistent. I'm knocked. Oh my gosh! But as soon as there's like a glimpse of light, then I'm awake. Right. That's so interesting. So, I've been wearing earplugs since college. <laughs> yeah, and actually, I mean, so the trick with white noise or one of these like more neutral sounds is that you have to listen to it long enough to ignore it. Like your brain mm. has to start ignoring it, right? right, it's, right. Um, so, so it's not something where you go, oh, I'm going to try that tonight and see if it works. Because at first you notice it. Um, right. When I used to travel to New York City a lot, I would always, I, would, I had several apps on my phone where I would uh, listen to those in New York, but I don't really need them at home where I live is pretty quiet. But the street noise and, you know, the trash trucks and the sirens and, you know, just people honking their horns. And it's like it was too much for me. Mm-hmm. Um, although when I talk to people who live in New York, they've actually gotten used to that. So yeah, um, they're like, what noise? Yeah. <laughs> oh, was it noisy? Like oh. a honk? I didn't hear that one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what? You didn't hear the guy on the street corner singing all night long? <laughs> oh, yeah. He's there every night, right? Yeah. So, um. So that's something to think about is if people want to use that to try to block out noise, it, sometimes you have to use it for a while before, again, you get, you actually ignore it. It's called habituation. Okay. Right. Habituation. I have a question. Speaking of travel, um, two-part question. One, how does, um, how does jet lag um, affect our sleep? And yes. two... There are a lot of people, especially in this day and age, who who 
take sleep aids like melatonin, like Benadryl, <laughs> um, a lot of a lot of different sleeping pills. Um, right. What what's that about? <laughs> like, can you can you yeah. uh, shed some light on that? So, so let me talk first about jet lag, which I wish I had, but I don't because we don't travel right now. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I would love to have jet lag because I'm in Hawaii or Europe or something. Right. <laughs> um, so jet lag happens because we can cross time zones faster than our circadian rhythm can shift. Ooh, wow. So yeah. So what happens is right. if you go like from California to, I was going to say Arizona, but they're only an hour off almost half the year. So um, let's pick like Colorado. <laughs> uh, one hour is not that big of a deal. Most of us don't even feel like we have jet lag, but if you go from California to New York and it's, you know, 11 o'clock in New York and you try to go to bed, your brain and your body think it's still 8 PM. So, because you just left California. Mm-hmm. Um, and then similarly, when you try to get up in the morning and you know, it's six 30, your brain is saying, are you kidding me? It's three 30 in the morning. Um, so when you travel, the way to get over that is first of all, know that it's going to happen. Um, and one of my strategies is when I travel from the West coast to the East coast, I do not have eight o'clock meetings. Like I just really like I, I can, if I can just sleep until 8 a.m., which is 5 a.m. on on the West Coast, I'm okay. Um, The other thing is that when I used to travel a lot more, I tried to stay on an earlier schedule at home on a regular basis. So maybe getting up by 6 or 6.30 so that when I travel to the East Coast, it's not such a huge change. Right. Um, But when you go to places like Europe or Asia or something like that, it's a different ballgame, right? Um, You can't kind of fudge your way around. (laughs) Uh, And it does take a few days to get used to it. Um, There are some interesting uh, calculators that you can find online or apps about like when to expose yourself to light. Mm -hmm. And if you're interested in using melatonin, when to take it so that you can try to shift your sleep around a little bit. But the bottom line is you just can't make it happen overnight. It takes a few days for your brain and your body to shift. And I recently learned something very interesting, which is that our sleep shifts a lot faster than our appetite. So we tend to be able to start sleeping at night in a new time zone a lot faster than we start getting hungry at the new meal times. So when I learned that, it really explained a lot to me about sometimes when I travel, it's like, I love eating. I love food in different places, but I don't always feel like eating. Mm. I'm just not like, and, and now I was like, oh, well, yeah, if it takes, you know, three or four days to your sleep to shift, but like seven to 10 days for your appetite hormones to shift. Now I understand. <laughs> then you're back on the plane, back home. Right. Exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. So you asked also about sleeping pills and melatonin and things like that. And, and marijuana. Uh, and marijuana, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> talk about that. Weed. So one of the things that's happened during the pandemic is sales of melatonin and over-the-counter sleep aids. It's like doubled or tripled. So people are spending more time in bed, but they're struggling a lot. Mm. Um, the, a better solution is to take a more natural approach and just work on your habits and routines, get outside every day, um, get some sunlight, uh, you know, do something relaxing to wind down at the end of the day. All of those are safer options. Over-the-counter sleep aids usually have Benadryl in them, which I always think about like Benadryl is actually something that's an antihistamine. People use it for allergies. 
sleepiness is a side effect. So we're taking a medication for its side effect. Hmm. That just doesn't really make sense to me. (laughs) Melatonin actually acts on our circadian clock. So the problem is if you take it at the wrong time, you actually can make your sleep worse instead of better. Okay. We have very little information on how marijuana affects sleep, either positively or negatively. Mm -hmm. I always get asked about CBD and THC. Yeah, I was just about to ask about that. I mean, I have no, (laughs) I have my, my, what I used to say about it is whether it works or not, it's an illegal drug and you have to decide how you feel about using an illegal drug to help you sleep. It's not illegal anymore. So that's a good thing. (laughs) But I think because it was an illegal substance for so long and there's no big pharmaceutical company who wants to fund this research, we just don't know. So we don't know if it's effective and we don't know if it's safe. Um, So again, I would advocate for doing things to take good care of your sleep and have good sleep habits. We know that's safe and we know it works, right? Yeah. It's a little harder. Um, but it's more action right, right. and we know more it work. Yeah. <laughs> the I mean, path is a little longer. <laughs> it is. It does take a little longer. It's funny you bring up the the CBD. My roommate left me some chocolates when I first moved in and I didn't read the back to see what was on them. So I was like, ooh, chocolate. And I had maybe like four four of the tablets and you're only supposed to have I don't I don't even know one probably one basically you had 40 milligrams yeah so I was just like why am I so tired oh my god what's happening like I'm just so relaxed and giggly like what's going on and then I finally looked and I was like oh these weren't regular chocolates like (laughs) that is one of the funniest housewarming gifts I have ever That's really funny. Actually, I remember, I think you called me the next day. I did. You were like, Chloe. (laughs) I was very high last night and not intentionally. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Um, So put a big sign if you ever give those as a gift. Right, exactly. Exactly. They were great chocolates. They were (laughs) great chocolates. But can we can we backtrack a little bit? We talked about um, screens and blue light at the very beginning. Let's circle back to that. Um, Ooh, yeah, I think people 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 now are aware that blue light yeah. is not good for us. But can you right. can you explain why and um, you know what things can we do to block to block that? Excuse me. Well, here's the thing: blue light is good for us at the right time of day. Mm. So if you think about like. If you go to the beach at noon, there's a lot of blue light in your environment, right? Right. right. And it, that's great because your brain and your body are expecting it. The challenge that has arisen is that that same wavelength of light that is a really strong signal, like, hey, it's daytime. You should be awake. You should be active. No melatonin yet. We're not ready for sleep. It's also emitted by our screens and devices. So this is where the conversation comes in about um the intensity of blue light in like TVs and, and uh, uh, smartphones and things like that. So blue light is a problem if you have a hard time falling asleep or if you can't, if you don't feel sleepy until later than you want to. Um, it's not a problem if you're one of those people who can hardly keep their eyes open until a reasonable bedtime. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Because what it's telling your brain is don't fall asleep yet. So if you're somebody who tends to get drowsy in the evening and you're trying to stay awake, I would never tell someone like that, oh, you can't read on your iPad. Um, So uh, there are now features in smartphones and 
I haven't figured out if there's one on the TV or not, but definitely on computers right. where you could lower the intensity of the blue light. But there is a catch. And the catch is that blue light is the most powerful signal, but it's not the only one. So the blue light filter is a helpful option, um, but it, it doesn't totally solve the problem. So the best thing to do if you're someone who has a hard time falling asleep is to put the screens aside for maybe an hour before you go to sleep. That temptation that we all have to like check the news one more time. I promise you there is nothing happy going on that will help you fall asleep. Right. Don't that do part. it. You know? yeah. Definitely nothing that will help you fall asleep. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It's been not. a really long time since I, you know, pulled up a news website. It was like, oh, yay. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so sad. Ugh. Yeah. So. So I have a question. Um, if someone's trying to learn, like you said, um, with time, I might be butchering this, but you were saying that when you're traveling, that you're traveling faster than your body's ability to adapt to its own circadian rhythm. So how does a person learn what that is for themselves? Like, how would I learn that for me? Oh, what a great question. Oh, a good, what, like kind of what your natural tendency is? Yeah. Okay. So let me start by saying there are some people that are just wired to be night owls and some people that are wired to be morning people. And if you're a night owl and you live with a morning person, they really make you mad, right? Because they're like <laughs> up and they've already had coffee and gone for a walk. And you're like, you know, like just coming out of your room. My mom. And, and like, right? <laughs> yeah. And my mom used to come in the morning and sing it. I'm like, stop. Hi, honey. Yeah. I'm like, stop singing. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it turns out this is genetic. So it's not like um, for at the extremes, let me say that. So there are some people, even if they try to go to bed early and they try to wake up early, their clock is just not made that way. Um, I have you know, one patient who said, I keep thinking I live in the wrong time zone, but then I realize if I lived in that time zone, I would just be in the wrong time zone. I'd just be in a different, I'd just be somewhere else, right? So it's like, there are some people where they just, um, and I won't get into all the details, but basically they're made that way. And mm -hmm. then there are people on the other side where it's like, oh yes, I get to sleep in on Sunday. And they're like, sleep in, what's that? I've never been able to sleep in past 7am. Right. So, uh, most of us, however, are in the middle. Um, so maybe we're a little bit more of a night owl or a little bit more of a morning person. So the answer to how you figure it out, I always say is think about how you sleep when you're on vacation. Are you the kind of person who says, I can't wait to be on vacation because I can wind down and get into bed and be up for a hike at sunrise? Are you the kind of person who goes on vacation and thinks, this is awesome. I'm going to go out every night. I'm going to sleep until 10 and, 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 you know, not care and shut off my alarm. So thinking about what your preferences are, I think gives you a lot of information about your internal tendency. Believe it or not, I think a lot of us have figured this out with COVID. Right? right. We don't have to commute yeah. to work. Right. <laughs> um, I was about to say that. <laughs> and uh, we have a heck of a lot less social opportunities in, in the evening. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people have their sleep has drifted a little bit later um, with, because we don't have to get up so early in the morning. So probably most people have a tendency to fall asleep and get up a little later than they normally do. But again, once the structure is in place and they have to shift earlier, they can. Um, I mean, I know this has been true for me. I'm a bit more of a morning person, but uh, but I can easily sleep until seven or seven thirty now. If you'd asked me that two years ago, the idea of sleeping until seven thirty was just 
I don't, I would never do that. I would be up by six, six 30 every day and like done sleeping and ready to start my day. But now I have, I don't need to get up. So, um, so that's, that's been kind of eye opening for me actually. Uh, and I, and I think again, a lot of people have had that experience. I do have a question about that. Yeah. Um, so at the beginning of COVID, so actually let me preface this by saying my work schedule pre-COVID was I was up at 4.30. I had my f- client, my first client at 5.30. So very early. Okay. So when COVID hit and I didn't have that client anymore, I was at home. The first maybe three or four days of the stay-at-home order, I was getting 10, 11, 12 hours of sleep, like solid. Yep. <laughs> And then after that, though, I was getting my normal like seven, eight. So can mm-hmm. can you speak on that? Like, is there such thing as catching up on sleep or is that is that a myth? You make up some of it. Mm-hmm. So if you are, you know, we call it chronic partial sleep deprivation. So just on a nightly basis, you just don't quite get enough. And then again, you take a vacation or there's a stay at home order. Um, then uh, it's normal to, to catch up a little bit. And I'll tell you. I normally sleep what I thought was enough between, you know, seven and eight hours. And those first few days of the stay at home order, I also slept a lot more and I was really perplexed. And I realized that, well, I probably, I'm not someone who needs seven and a half hours. I think I'm actually somebody who needs more like eight hours, but with all of the things going on and and even small things, I realized like my neighborhood, nobody gets up and goes to work. So I don't hear my neighbor. I don't hear people walking their dog and my dog barking at them. Like all the things that were probably waking me up at the end of the night weren't happening. And um, so I think that was a really common experience. And I think what, what, at least what I learned is that I probably was pretty close to the amount of sleep that I needed, but not quite there. Right. Um, so I've really tried to be a little more conscious of that now and think like, no, seven and a half hours in bed actually is not enough for me. I really need eight. Um, So uh, it was a little eye opening, I would say, even I think for a lot of us who thought we were getting enough sleep. Right. um, Maybe we're just a little short. Yeah. Makes sense. Which brings me to my next question about sleep trackers and wearables. Uh So I have something called a whoop and it's, oh, (laughs) whoop sisters. (laughs) So what, okay. So the whoop, I I mean, as you know, it tracks your sleep um, and it gives you the different stages of sleep as well, which is cool. How accurate is that really? Because there's the Nike watch, there's the whoop, there's the ring. So there there are a few out there that are pretty popular. Um, Yeah. Can you speak on that? So I mean, there are devices like this that I use in a lot of my research where there's, you know, big studies where they validate their mathematical algorithms and they're quite fancy and they're like a thousand dollars. So no person is going to go out and buy one of these. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're not Bluetooth and, you know, all kinds of that nonsense. So consumer wearables are really interesting because it actually gives people a little bit of a window into their habits. Um, Most of the devices use a combination of movement and heart rate. So if you're a healthy person, you don't take medications or things like that, you don't have a sleep disorder, they're, they're relatively accurate for measuring sleep and awake. 
when it comes to sleep stages, they're a lot less accurate. Okay. So I try to tell people like, don't read too much into that. Like, I, I mean, and I, my colleagues and I, we sort of joke about Fitbit induced insomnia. Like someone will come in and say, <laughs> my Fitbit says I haven't had REM for a year. And it's like, well, I don't believe your Fitbit. <laughs> um, a Fitbit diagnosis. That's hilarious. Exactly. Forget WebMD. We've, we've transferred over right, to right. Fitbit. We are way past Google. <laughs> Um, so the thing that I find helpful though, is that it's a great way to make you accountable. It's like when people are trying to change their eating habits, keeping a food diary is a great tool. So, um, ironically, our family all got whoop bands because my 14 year old son, who's a mountain biker, uh, who's into mountain biking, wanted to get one to measure his recovery. Mm-hmm. And this allowed us to do a little bit of an experiment about, what happens to, and I don't actually know all the things that go into the recovery metrics for whoop and I don't endorse any products or anything like that, but, but that was his interest. And then I thought, well, that's kind of cool. So then the rest of us got them. And now we have like a competition to see who can have the best sleep. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Um, but it's been very helpful for him because rather than, you know, he notices that if he stays up late playing video games or something like that, well, his recovery metrics go down, right? And, uh, and then you can see it's got a nice little graph that shows you how regular your sleep habits are. Um, and so he can actually visualize what his mother has been telling him to do his whole life, <laughs> which is have a regular routine. And if you want to stay up a little late or sleep in a little bit, that's okay. But you can't like, you know, be all over the map. So in terms of keeping people accountable and, and monitoring changes in their behavior, I actually think wearables can be really useful, Okay, but we don't want to read too much into it. Right. Because they're not, they're not perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if people do notice something on their wearable that they're concerned about, it's good to maybe reach out to your doctor and ask about it. But again, don't get too hung up on the little details because they're not very well validated for like REM and deep sleep and all that. Got you. What impact do you aim to have through your practice and what have you gained or learned personally through your journey so far? Um, Well, I love working with people who have issues with their sleep because once you get them sleeping better, the world is a much nicer place. I had a, uh, one of the exercises I actually have people do sometimes is to draw a picture of what their life looks like with sleep problems and then draw a picture of what their life would look like if they slept well. And one of my favorite ones is somebody drew, she's an incredible painter and she painted a picture of like looking at the sun through a keyhole as like what life was like when she had insomnia. And then she drew like this beautiful sunset um, as what, right. Is like the possibilities are infinite. If I could just get a decent night's sleep. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had patients who have, you know, really struggled with their weight and with, you know, high blood pressure and things like that. And once we get them sleeping better, it's so much easier to have the energy to go exercise um, to prepare meals, to do all the other things that we need to take care of, to take care of ourselves. So the thing that I love most, it's not just getting people sleeping better, but when people come back and they'll say, wow, my spouse and I get along so much better when I'm rested. Wow. I have more energy for my kids. Gee, I'm taking so much better care of myself. I'm better at my job. Like all the things that go with it. That's what I love. Wow. You asked me a second question. I forgot about my own journey. So Um, I'll tell you a story where I, I kind of like, you know, you have these aha moments in your life. So when I was a first year graduate student, 
um, you know, I had a full course load. I was doing research. I was um, at the time I had finished. I was no longer a college athlete, but you know, once you're an athlete, you never give it up. So I was trying right. to also do triathlons, <laughs> at the time, which was like for fun, right? So for fun, I started swimming and doing triathlons, and I was so sleepy. And I remember that at the end of the first year, I came home after my last exam and I sat down on my couch and I just cried. I just cried and cried and cried. And I was like completely exhausted, physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted. And I, I just remember having this realization of like, I can't do this for three more years. There's no way. And, and so I kind of took the summer, I took a little break over the summer. I didn't have any classes. And when I came back in the fall, I just said, okay. I am never staying up after midnight for any reason whatsoever. Uh, and um, I am going to take one day on the weekend and I'm not going to do anything related to work or school. And the interesting thing was I was a much nicer, happier person. And my grades were exactly the same. Hmm. <laughs> so I was probably doing myself a huge disservice by not, not sleeping because I wasn't actually learning as much. And so I had to invest more time in studying because it was harder for me to retain. This was before we actually knew about this direct link between learning and memory and sleep like we do now. Um, and I kind of never went back. Uh, and even now in my professional life, like I set clear limits. Like I do not take red eyes for work. Um, I think it's unreasonable for someone to expect me to be on an airplane instead of sleeping and then work the next day. I just don't make those compromises. I would never say, okay, sure. If you're only going to let me eat McDonald's or fast food for the next week, I'll still go to this conference. I would never do that. So why would I do that with my sleep? Right. Right. Um, so th that's, that's kind of been part of my, my own journey through this is this like kind of aha moment, but then really in my adult life, like setting limits. And, you know, if, if somebody wants to go out to dinner at nine o'clock and I have a meeting the next day, I just don't go. I mean, I just, I've just decided that this is a priority for me and I tell people why, you know, well, I don't, I don't think it's worth, you know, I don't want to feel tired tomorrow. It's important to me that I'm rested. Um, and, and I just don't make excuses about it. Nice. Healthy boundaries. Mm -hmm. We're both working on that. Right. <laughs> So where could our, our listeners find you? Because I know that they probably would love to, to find more information um, sleep in general, I think is such an untapped subject mm -hmm. right now. So my favorite place to send people is, um, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, which is a large, uh, medical organization focused on sleep. Okay. Uh, and I'm a part, a big part of that organization. We have a website called sleepeducation.org and it, it literally has like everything you want to know all about sleep disorders and, and sleep tips and things like that. Um, if you're, if you really want to nerd out about, about this stuff, my suggestion is to follow the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the Sleep Research Society on Twitter um, because they cool. are always sharing new and cool little facts about sleep and tips about sleep and things like that. Um, so uh, most of the, you know, education and things like that that I do is through through the, uh, the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and their um, public facing uh, websites and things like that. Okay. So website that's, that's and Twitter. Yeah. Twitter. Oh. Website and Twitter. Perfect. Perfect. So we have, we have one last question before we let you go. And it's, sure. it's a question that we ask all of our, our guests at the end of, of this. Um, what is your definition of journey? Um, so to me, a journey is a continuous work in progress. 
And I actually find incredible joy in being on a journey. I suppose, you know, I, I approach my research and I approach science not as finding an answer, but as constantly pursuing answers to new questions. I feel like every time I answer a question, there's another one. Um, and, you know, in my personal life, I think the, the other thing is I've really enjoyed aging. Um, I really feel like as I've got, gotten older uh, and now I'm approaching 50, that when I look back, I, I feel like I have so much rich experience to draw on. Um, and I, at the same time, while I reflect on the past, I think part of being on a journey is being really present focused. Uh, and making sure that most moments of your day are things that really mean something. Wow. I love that. Yeah. Carpe diem. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Jennifer. Is it weird that I call you Dr. Jennifer Martin? (laughs) Like I call you, I call you by your full name. You can't just call me Jennifer. (laughs) I'm like, hi, Dr. Jennifer Martin. (laughs) This has been so insightful and just, oh man, one, I'm excited to get a full night's sleep and two, your example about getting the same exact grades and just getting the same amount of work done without depriving yourself in that process. I think that that's definitely just Can I ask you a question? Mm Mm-hmm. So if there's one thing that you could do to improve your sleep, what would it be? Ooh. <laughs> Something um, like doable and small. Yeah. I think for me, it is making sure that I don't eat super close to bedtime because mm-hmm. it it definitely, it messes with my stomach. It messes with how like my dreams (laughs) like I sleep terribly if I eat at eight and I go to sleep at 10 like I need I need more time than that so yeah making sure I get enough enough time in between eating and sleeping Mm -hmm. that makes sense I think mine would be to not think about everything that I need to do the next day I have a tendency like I can easily shut the phone off and I like I let my phone die. Honestly, I'm I'm that person that likes to go off the grid. So that's not the issue. But I definitely as I rest will then or get prepared for rest of like, okay, how do I need to prepare myself for tomorrow versus I did great today. These are all the things that I did and just putting a period right after that. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Don't seem very doable. <laughs> So next time I talk to you, I'll hear about how. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. So. Oh. Oh, no. I was going to say bye, guys. Oh, oh, yeah. I forgot. (laughs) See ya. Bye. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of the Continua Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our Continua experience or have any questions based on the topic of this episode, DM us on Instagram at the Continua.